Thank you, Christy, and good morning. Okay, as the kids are leaving the room, if your eyes are playing with you, I'm not Michael this morning. This is still Wayne. Uh, let me fill you in a little bit. Michael came down with a cold this week, and then it ended up with a little bit of a sore throat and a small minor fever. And just to be safe, he's staying home this morning. So Lord willing, he'll be with us again next Sunday, so I'm going to fill in. So that's what's going on behind the scenes with Michael. It's kind of a last-minute thing, but God's got his church, and we're going to run with it this morning. So now would be the time to leave if you don't want to hear me. <laughs> I didn't mean that, really. I was only kidding. Uh, I do want to make one other comment. Uh, I want to go back to Clay's comments earlier. I mean, it is such a great privilege to serve with these new guys that are elders. I, I wish we could take the time to just let you see all the things that are going on behind the scenes to develop the ministries here. Th these men are in love with Christ, and they are just working hard uh, to make this a place where the gospel can be shared in Middle Tennessee. So I'm just so thankful for that. And I want to just call out Clay for a minute. Uh, I love Clay to death. He, he's not just an elder here. He functions as the church treasurer. He has a finance and an accounting background as well. But it's all melded into his love for Christ. I loved when he talked about that 91 cents of every dollar this year is going towards savings. Uh, I mean, what? An accountant would tell you that, right? Uh, I, was, I was sitting there thinking this morning, first hour when he said that, we're sitting in Dave Ramsey's building, and I'm thinking, well, in Middle Tennessee, all that gets talked about is budgeting, right? How do you budget for not spending any money? Uh, th this is how God has blessed us over the last four years, and we've built a pretty decent, you know, savings account that can be applied to the future. So I just want to thank Clay for all that he's doing. He's actually in the process of helping create the first real church budget that we're going to have. Because come this time next year, this lease is going to be uh, on our balance sheet, if you will. And we're going to experience what every church experiences and some spending. But the great news is God has just blessed us through your generosity. And the church continues to grow. So thank you uh, for that. Thank you, Clay. Uh, for what you're doing. Let me just transition to the special event that Christy mentioned. You know, 21 years ago today, on September 11th, 2001, terrorist attacks killed 2,977 people and injured thousands at the World Trade Center in New York City, at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and as an airplane crashed in a farm field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. You know, the world changed that day. Many of us remember exactly where we were 21 years ago. Christy mentioned that. I remember where I was, and I also remember that I wasn't pregnant. <laughs> Just saying, to be clear. But you know what? Some of us in this room have no recollection of that event. Now, maybe you're too young to remember Maybe you weren't even born then. So we don't forget the sheer tragedy of that day. Each year as a nation, we pause to remember the significance of this event that changed the trajectory of our present world. It's a reminder that evil is all around us. And our world today echoes the impact of that event some 21 years ago. 
Now for me, of all the photos that are captured that day, these two that are on the screen frame the significance for me. For those of us that were there, we saw evil firsthand as planes loaded with passengers were intentionally flown into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. But you know what we also saw? The resilience of the human spirit. Now, the photo of these three New York City firemen as they raised the American flag over that destruction really characterizes that spirit. You see, today, on this day, we remember those lost on September 11, 2001. We also remember our nation's finest young men and women who gave their lives since that day to combat that evil. 6,783 American soldiers have died since then. 52,000 more have been wounded. Today, we remember their families impacted by the loss of their loved ones. We also remember those who served and survived. They live on now with the trauma of war, and for some, the altering injuries of war. Now, some of you here with us this morning are counted in these groups, and on behalf of everyone else here in the room, I want to thank you for the sacrifices that your family has made. We are forever grateful. Billy Graham, as he spoke at the National Cathedral three days later on September 14th, made this remark within the sum of his comments. He said, we're reminded of the mystery and reality of evil. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign, and that he is a God of love and mercy and compassion in the midst of suffering. The lesson of this event is not only about the mystery of iniquity, but second, it's a lesson about our need for each other. You know, evil is both a mystery and a reality. None of us can escape its impact in our lives. Graham reminds us that community is a salve that heals when evil strikes. I want to practice being that salve this morning by asking you to join with me as I pray for those people impacted. And as we begin the message this morning, would you pray with me? Our dear Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we are reminded that evil is around us. And yet we are encouraged knowing that you have overcome evil. We thank you, dear Father, for you are the God over all things. And you, by your sheer will, have determined that for those of us who believe, we can know for certain that we too will overcome evil. Thank you, Father, that we are able to cling on to the promise that you have prepared for us for eternity, life everlasting. And as we wait, dear Lord, we remember those who have 
suffered loss of family, friends, those who continue to walk on this earth with trauma from serving in war and with injury that is life-lasting. Oh, how we pray, Lord God, that you might take these moments today and encourage these people, lift their spirits. More so, we would pray that you would draw them to Christ and that they would know what it is to overcome all of this. Father, thank you for the people here in this room, for we have gathered to open your word and consider it. I do ask so humbly, even as I have been charged to do this this morning, that it would only be your words that come from this platform, that it would only be your truth, and that where it isn't, that you would work in the hearts of the people as they hear and conform them to the truth of your word. Thank you for this morning and what you are about to do in these remaining moments. In Christ's name, amen. I want to continue with this idea that surrounds September 11, that of evil. I've always been drawn to Psalm 23. It's such a well-known passage for many of us. Uh, Particularly, verse 4 has always struck me. And I think that it stands out because it really is relative to this idea of evil. Even if evil is so great that it might bring death, David declares that he doesn't fear it because God is with him. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I've always connected especially with David's description of death in this verse. See if you can track with me on this. I'm a little odd on some of these things. I remind myself that death is nothing more than Christ's shadow cast against his light. The valley of the shadow of death, David says. And on the other side of death is life everlasting. You might remember John's statement in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Quick factoid this morning for you. Shadows are gone in eternity, and life replaces death. Psalm 23 draws me, I admit it. David's statement also reflects an attitude towards fear. He says in that verse, I fear no evil. There's an absoluteness to his statement. Just certainty. And it causes me to wonder, does that statement really reflect my personal response to evil when it presses in on me? How can I, or for that matter, you, live a life that fears no evil? I mean, I think it's a relevant question for us. Well, in Romans chapter 12, Paul addresses this question. And this morning, I'd like to make a couple of observations about this chapter, focusing on just a few verses, and look at how they might apply to us, so that if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Romans chapter 12, or swipe on your digital devices to that chapter. I want to draw your attention first to the very last verse of chapter 12. 
Paul makes a declarative statement there. And he uses a grammatical equation to frame the idea. It's what we would call a contrast structure. It's the idea of do not contrasted against do. He says, do not be overcome by evil. But, parenthetically, do overcome evil with good. The language that Paul uses here is what we refer to as a present tense imperative. It is command language. It is directive. An old friend of mine used to call these statements gotta do's. That's not high academia, but I sure relate to it. It's something that we need to act upon. There's an expectation of action as a result. And that action, because it's written in the present tense, is about doing something in the present. You might use the simple word now, to do it now. There's a calling here in the way that Paul writes in chapter 12 that it needs to be taken care of. And when it comes to the concept of evil, Paul commands that we are to overcome it. Now, I find this word really interesting because the literal definition for overcome is to climb over, to climb over. Paul simply says that he is commanding us to climb over evil as if it were a temporary obstacle that has no ability to stop us as believers. Now, this simple statement Paul makes admits that evil's there. It's not a figment of our imagination. And it definitely impacts us directly. Paul's even commanding believers to use something he calls as good to climb over evil as an obstacle. And we're going to see in chapter 12 that he develops that idea. But before we do, let me ask you a question. When you think of evil... Or you think of maybe of fear, the presumptive emotion associated with evil, what comes to mind for you? It'd be kind of interesting if I took a microphone and walked around the room and just started asking folks, you know, what, what are you concerned about relative to evil? We don't have the time to do that. I'm not sure I could handle it, so I'm not going to do that. But let me give you a list just to get your attention. And before I get into it, let me just go down a rabbit trail for a second. You know, I found this list, and I have to confess, I was shocked when I found it, because it was paid for by our tax dollars. Now, you're looking at that list, just like I was looking at that list, and the thought that came to me was, wait a minute, any one of us could have created this list. Why did we have to spend money to make the list. That's a whole different topic. Let me kind of come back to center. Oh, well, one more thing. It's the 2021 American Fear Index. Really? But look at the list. I mean, there's really nothing surprising on the list, is there? I mean, you can notice death is the centerpiece. That shouldn't surprise us when it comes to fear. But I did notice one thing that's missing, at least for me. It's a glaring omission. And that is there's nothing on the list 
where fear is associated with what comes after this life. What about after death? Apparently, Americans don't care. At least that's what this survey that we paid for says. Now, let me contrast that for a second because I don't think that's accurate. You know, I've had the privilege in my life to travel all over the world in countless numbers of countries. And as I did, I did find myself in war zones and in, you know, areas that were governed by the military. In those moments, I am always reminded of one thing that's true there. Now matters the most to those people because tomorrow is really uncertain. Today might be the last meal. Today might be the last time that they hug a family member. They know that. You see, as Paul writes here in Romans chapter 12, he is emphasizing now. His directive is for the present. It's not to be put off. It's not to be delayed. It's not to be secondary. And when he says in verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he is laying before us an expectation that we act in the now. Now, sidebar for just a moment. We can believe, and some of us do, that evil is exclusively an external matter. It's something that comes to us. It's thrust on us from the outside. It's when we're wronged and someone brings issues into our lives. I want to remind us for just a moment as we delve into Romans chapter 12 that Paul's context of now is relevant to how we too can be a source of evil, us. Evil can come from us. James makes this statement in his epistle in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your ignorance. All such boasting is evil. I'd suggest that sometimes our ignorance, or said another way, our lack of wisdom, leads to an attitude of arrogance. James calls it boasting in this text. And that arrogance, James says, can be a source of evil. All such boasting is evil. I'd acknowledge that arrogance always puts us at odds with God. In its essence, we are declaring equality with God when we are arrogant. Or even worse, the naivety of thinking that we have so much authority, we could frame the world in our own image. I just want to caution us of that as we take a look at what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 12. So let's go back there to chapter 12. I want to take a look at a verse a little earlier than verse 21 in verse 9. Paul makes a similar statement there. It's much tighter. It's a little pithier. It's kind of in the middle of the verse. He says, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, he wants us to understand how devastating evil is when we toy with it, when we allow it in our lives, even for a moment. He uses the word abhor 
to develop that idea. Now that word literally means, the, it's the image of a person shuddering in the cold that isn't dressed properly to be out in it. Or maybe even more specifically, it is when you're confronted with a horror that you just detest it and you don't want to see it. You want to move back from it. You see, Paul's describing here that evil should be easily identified. It's really the opposite of who we are in Christ. But it also should cause an immediate reaction, one that our spirit detests. We shouldn't be drawn to it. We should run from it. Now, I want to suggest that the sad thing for us is we don't always, do we? We're drawn into it. We work it sometimes. We suffer the consequences of it. Now, in contrast, Paul says that good is something worth hanging on to. He says it's, we should cling to what is good. Now, like Paul's admonition to overcome evil with good in verse 21, he says clinging to what is good is important. We need to hang on to good. And when we hang on to good, we won't be hanging on to evil. You can't do both at the same time. Well, Paul makes one other reference to evil in this chapter, and he does it in verses 17 through 19. Here he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now here Paul warns that evil's a hot potato. It can harm you. He's absolute about it, though. Do you see this? Never pay back evil for evil. Not once, not in a weak moment, not out of revenge when you're wrong, not when you're angry. He says, never pay back evil done to you with evil when it comes to you. Paul sets a standard of response in no uncertain terms in this verse. Now, for us, no matter the evil done against us, he says we're to be at peace with all men as much as it is within our power. We can't always. There are going to be occasions where that is not going to happen. But Paul says the norm is that we should be trusting God to deal with the heart and life of the one who does evil against us. It is not our job to seek out the revenge. Now, John Calvin speaks to these verses in his commentary, and I, I think he has a very poignant observation that's worthy of us to think about. Let's just look at it. In this life, our whole struggle is against wickedness, Kelvin says. If we try to retaliate, we admit that we have been defeated by it. But if, on the other hand, we return good for evil, we display that by that very fact, an invincible constancy of mind exists. Anyone who attempts to overcome evil with evil will perhaps surpass his enemy in doing harm, but it'll be to his own ruin. So acting, he is fighting the devil's battle. Here, Calvin characterizes life as a constant and regular struggle against evil. Now, I personally love the idea that retaliation is actually a sign of defeat. 
and this aggressive guy that wants to win all the time, that's a good thing to me to put a check mark next to. Don't want to be defeated. Let's not retaliate. He also makes another interesting observation. He says that retaliation can actually do more harm than even the original evil. And then he says that this is characterized that it's the devil's trap for us when we retaliate. I think that's a strong warning that's worth consideration. So it leaves us with this question, what's Paul want us to act on? What's he really expect us to do? Well, his letter to the Romans is an amazing theological construct. If you're familiar with it, in the first 11 chapters of the Romans letter, Paul meticulously details the doctrines of Christ, of salvation, of justification, and of sanctification. And as he does this, at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, he begins by explaining the source of evil and how God has responded to it. Let me just give you that construct. Evil in the world then, in Paul's day, is the same evil that's in the world today. Now, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 21 through 24 briefly. And as you're turning, let me just give you a little bit of context, the backdrop that's in verses 18 through 20. Paul's just finished describing that God has placed the knowledge of him in all humanity. We call that natural revelation. It's known to all men. And then he declares the resulting problem. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, that's natural revelation, they did not honor him as God. That's man's rebellion. Or give thanks. That would have been worship. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Unregenerate man doesn't see a need for God. They are God unto themselves. And that would be true of us before we came to Christ. But Paul then declares that God acts upon mankind in his disbelief. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now, this would be God's temporal judgment against disbelieving man. Now, Paul goes on in the following verses with the results of that. And it sounds eerily similar to what we are experiencing today. He talks about depraved minds that deny genders, that accept unnatural relationships, he references constant friction between people that creates factions. You see, Paul's description culminates in an extensive list that is in verses 29 through 31. But if you're looking at it, you can see. And you know the top four at the front end of the list? Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and our topic this morning, evil. Well, let's flip back to chapter 12. Now, we begin at verse 21. Paul declares that we should overcome evil with good. He wrote that as an imperative. There's an urgency that goes with it. I referenced that it's about now. 
I want you to look at verse 1 in contrast. It's a similar idea. Paul says in verse 1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now the word translated urge in verse 1 literally means to call to one side. Now some translations use the word appeal in replacement for urge. I appeal to you versus I urge you. Either way, here's the mental model I want to put before you. It's very much like a coach who calls a player to the sideline to let him know what he's seeing on the field so the player knows how to respond. It's that kind of an idea. Paul's urging these Roman believers. He's appealing to these Roman believers. He's calling them to the side to coach them. What's his topic? It's really straightforward. How to live in a way that honors God. How to live in a way that's acceptable to God. It's the idea of being pleasing to God. He frames it by describing it as a very form of worship. This last Friday evening, I was at a high school football game for my, one of my grandsons. And during the game, I was leaning up against the fence behind the team. And it happened to be, accidentally, at the finish of a play that had led to a touchdown pass for the other team. The defensive backfield coach walked over to the safety who was charged with covering the receiver that had just caught the pass. The coach pulled the player close in, looked at him through his helmet, and he said this, what did you see to prevent that from happening the next time? I mean, I love this coach. He was looking forward. And you know, even more than looking forward, he was believing the player could pull it off. You see, Paul's coaching all of us in this text. He's calling us to the side. He's looking square in our eyes and he's asking, are you ready? Are you ready to do whatever it takes to demonstrate worship to God? You know, the answer is we can, but the question is, Will we? Paul's explaining that to these Roman believers. One other illustration before we move on. I was listening to a question and answer podcast session this past week, and the speaker was reminiscing about the constant hum of people in the church wanting the church to do things for them. It's all about my felt needs and what I need done for me in the moment. Now, he made a remark. I want to say candidly, I'm not sure I agree with it, but it sure did get my attention. Here's how he answered a person that was asking for that. He said, hasn't God forgiven your sins and granted you eternal life? What more do you need? Now, you're all staring at me. Don't throw me out yet. It is an interesting thing to consider, though, isn't it? Because we do want to make it about us very often. Well, let's take a look at the next verse. Paul's detailing the expected action. This is 
verse 2, at the end of the verse, he makes this statement, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's that word good again that's in here. Remember in verse 21, he says, overcome evil with good. Paul's emphasizing that the objective of God's will is that goodness, acceptability, even perfection could mark our lives. That's a pretty big order. I mean, it's, it gets me to the question, okay, I, I hear you, but I don't know that I see that for me. Well, the beginning of the verse does a better job of answering that question. Look at it with me. Do not be conformed to this world, but do be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see that same construct that he used in verse 21? Do not do, that comparison. It's pointed directly at us, these words. Calls into question our intentions. What do we intend to do? And it demands that we set our mind towards a specific objective. You see, Paul's speaking again in this present tense imperative language as he did in verse 21 when he says, don't be conformed to this world. I mean, it's pretty simple. We need to go a different way than the world. I mean, that sounds obvious. We need to swim upstream against the current if you want to use an analogy or if you, you want to use a sports analogy. We need to build muscles and lung capacity. It's going to take effort. Man, when I read these words, I just keep being taken back to Michael's encouragement to not let the world teach you theology. It applies here. Conforming or looking like the world is the outcome of letting the world teach you theology. Paul simply says no. He's playing parent and coach now. He wants transformation. Look at that word transform here. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that word in the Greek is the word that we get in our English, metamorphosis. You know, going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's about as far as I went in science. I have no better example than butterflies and caterpillars. But it is this kind of a change. Paul's declaring that a believer's mind can be completely changed into a new way of thinking. And this new way of thinking will protect him from evil. The metamorphosis is an absolute change. He's taking something that is and turning it into something that can be. It's absolute. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one thing in verse 2, and that is the outcome of a renewed or transformed mind. Paul says that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, the will of God is a really big theological idea. We are not going to unpack that. But I do want to make one observation about it. Paul frames it that we can prove it, that the will of God is active in our lives. And I want to show you an example of how Paul thinks about that. If you do have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1 for just a moment. I want to show you just a couple of verses there. Paul opens his letter to the Colossians in verse 1 with these words. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now here, Paul credits God with his apostleship. He says it was by way of God's will that he became an apostle. In no way did Paul believe that his transformation came from any other source than God himself. Now that's a good place to start when we're thinking about God's will. How about this for an obvious statement? God's will is his will. I mean, we like to make it ours, don't we? We want to frame it around stuff that we think about. 
The reality is we don't get to influence it. We don't get to package it. This is God's will applied to us in our life. Now look at verses 9 and 10. He moves from himself to the Colossians. He directs his comments at them. He says a second thing is that it's appropriate to pray to receive the knowledge of his will. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's very much like praying for wisdom. Now that wisdom comes directly from God and as it does, that would be God's will for us to have his wisdom. Now we can also deduce a purpose in Paul's thinking here. Knowing God's will produces a life that walks according to God's standards. Do you see, he says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. He describes it as walking worthy. That's the same language that he uses throughout his Ephesians letter. Back to Romans 12. When Paul declares that the renewing of your mind may prove the will of God, he is certain that God's will is for their minds to be in conformance with his word. And if their minds are in conformance with his word, their actions will follow. For what they believe, they act out in their life. Now let's keep moving here. Look at verse 3 with me. I'm going to wrap up into several applications. Once again, take a look at the end of the verse. Paul credits every believer with a measure of faith. That would be a confidence in God's truth, in his word. Every believer, every one of us shares in the life-saving and eternal benefit of salvation in Christ. Paul says it this way earlier in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. Just listen with me. You don't need to go there. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, Paul's not questioning salvation here. He's focused on justification, saved once and forever. But he is questioning personal responsibility and wisdom. Look at the middle part of this verse. I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But think as to have sound judgment. You know, here's the rub. A mark, one of the marks of a true believer is a humility that they don't have it all figured out when it comes to living a righteous life or knowing God's word. I know in my own life, I find myself saying more often as I get older, something like this, this is what I understand about this text as it relates to my own study right now. Now, that's not a question of whether God's word is absolute true or able to be understood, it is a question to me. Have I done the work to understand? Do I know my own limits of sound judgment? And I think that's something that Paul would say is worthy for us all to consider. Let's put these three verses together, and then I'll give you three applications and we'll wrap up. So let's start with the end in mind. Verse 3 declares that our faith is secure. God has given us the measure of faith that we need. It's verifiable in our hearts. That's the first thing for us to remember. Second thing is in verse 1. Paul says, I urge you, or if you choose to use the word, I appeal to you. He wants you to set 
everything else aside and listen to him. One of my sons has a practice when he wants his children to pay attention. He takes them by the shoulder and he looks at them and he says, look in my eyes so that I know you are listening. Man, I love that. See, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying this to each of us. Why? What's he want us to listen to? Let me suggest he wants us to present ourselves before God as acceptable worshipers. That's what he wants us to do. That's where personal responsibility comes in, and that's the second thing to remember. Here's the third. It's in verse 2. Paul charges us how to act on personal responsibility. He says we're to avoid looking like the world by being changed, by being transformed. I mean, there's good news and there's bad news in this, depending on your perspective. Paul says that you must metamorphosis your mind. You must transform your mind. That requires you to do something. You don't get to wait on that. We need a changed mind, Paul says. We need a mind that has been exercised to understand the truth in God's word. This is God's will for the Romans in those days and for us today. And it can only happen one way. We have to respond. We have to present ourselves to his word. Paul says the benefit's pretty great. Good comes your way. It's good that overcomes evil. And that's the third thing. Well, let me give you just three practical things that I take away. Maybe this, is, this will be a little helpful. First, thanking God daily for salvation keeps us on track. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to get caught up in the day, and I forget. Paul's reminding us how easy it is to complain, to forget, to expect others to do more, to make ourselves the center of the world. You know, and when Paul's language, it's not all that familiar to us. I mean, he says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's not normal language for us in our contemporary world. But for a Jew in the first century, for Paul, it's a recollection of his transformation. He's speaking from personal experience. He's reminding us of the significance of Christ's sacrifice and that the sacrifices of the temple are no more, that works are no more. We have been forgiven. Paul's challenging us to realize the significance of our faith. As believers, we should be marked by an overwhelming thanksgiving that just flows out of us. I mean, that should be our character in the world. You see, thanking God daily for salvation keeps us on track. Here's the second thing. Being in God's word daily equips us to overcome evil. If you're like me, we underestimate the evil that surrounds us and how often we succumb to it. Paul's pulling us in. He's speaking as a coach and a father. And he's asking the question, do you want to overcome evil in your life? Do you want to climb over it as an obstacle that can be defeated? He says... You need to transform your mind. And the only way that can happen is through God's word. Man, I'm a broken record on this with people. It is a responsibility. We can't make another person fall in love with the word of God. I can't convince you to fall in love with the word of God. 
You have to want to. That's what Paul's getting at. It can't be delegated. You know, as a guy, let me, let me just make a really practical comment here so that I can upset you men. You know, guys, your wife is not a surrogate for your faith. And I am looking at the guys in the room. Too often when it comes to faith, men take a back seat. Why do we have trouble in the church? Why are we not the influence in the world that we should be? It's because men have taken a back seat. I'll go further. I'm amazed at how often people become trapped by evil tactics, by evil in the world that could be avoided if they had just invested time in God's word and understood the wisdom that could be applied in those moments. You see, being in God's word daily equips us to overcome evil. Here's the last thing. It's a little bit of a word jumble. Realizing that transformation is a life journey encourages our walk. You know, this transformation, it's going to continue to happen the entire time we are on this world. But we have, to, we have to take a step. We have to move towards it. You know, Paul uses two interesting words in Romans 12, verse 2. He uses the word renewing, and he uses the word prove. Both of those are verbs. Let me try and frame it this way for you. Don't we begin each day new? We can't do anything about yesterday. It's done. But with each day, it's a new slate. It's a new plan. It's a new way forward. That's much like Paul's idea of renewing our mind. It's ongoing. It's looking forward, not to the past, to what God's Word will teach us today. Paul explains that this is what helps you prove the will of God. Our actions confirm what we believe. None of us can escape that. We can talk about what we believe, but you know how it's measured. It's measured in our actions. The reality is we all make mistakes. We all sin. The focus of transformation is overcoming the past so that you can live the next day a different way. I'll finish with my last little simple sports analogy. It's about moving the ball down the field. It really has nothing to do with winning the game. God already won the game. We're just to be players on the field, and the question is, are we going to play the game? Well, I want to close by just offering a blessing to you. You know, Paul, in my mind, is the greatest doctrinal theologian and apologist in history. I'm always amazed at how he can move fluidly between theological ideas and then practical advice on living. In either case, he exemplifies a life with purpose. He understands what priority is. And as he closes this letter in Romans in chapter 16, he offers what we would call a doxology. Man, it's deep theologically as anything ever penned. But it also raises questions for us on what we believe. I'm going to close by reading those words to you, and then Jason's going to sing us a song to send us out. But I want to simply ask you this. 
What more do you need to hear to commit to taking a step to transform your mind? Why wouldn't you? Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen.